0: Now, friends, we come to the 14th chapter of John, and we are trotting today on the top of mountain peaks that are high in the sky, let me tell you. And again, I must say, I feel totally inadequate for this section of the Gospel of John. Now, we saw last time that the Lord Jesus has announced to Simon Peter, after he made the statement he is willing to lay down his life for the Lord's sake that he would that very night deny him three times by the time that the rooster crowed in the morning. Well, friends, the rooster crowed that morning, and Simon Peter had denied the Lord three times. Now, there is a chapter break here, which I think is rather unfortunate, because our Lord is still speaking to Simon Peter here at the very beginning. And this has been a great comfort to God's people down through the years. In fact, we've called it the most familiar chapter. And the reason that I do that was that years ago, right here in Pasadena, where our headquarters is now, I had a radio program, and on that program, I suggested that people submit their favorite chapter of the Bible, and then we'd run a series of messages on the radio on the favorite chapters of the Bible. Well, I expected John 14 to receive some attention, but nothing like it did receive. Fact of the matter is, more people sent in John 14 than the rest of the Bible put together. And that sent me back to this chapter to look at it afresh and anew, though it seemed to be very familiar. May I say to you that this was given to a man in the time of an emergency, in the time of a crisis, and it was given to him to tide him over. It was given to him to bring him through that dark night of denial and bring him back into a right relationship with God. And it was given to comfort him. And this chapter has cushioned the shock for multitudes of people from that day right down to the present hour. Now, will you notice what he says? He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now, this is a clear cut statement of our Lord that He's God. I know that there was here in Southern California a theology professor who made the statement that Jesus never did teach his deity. Well, I offered to take him to lunch and to point out at least 15 passages, and there are more than that, by the way, but I'd point out 15 for a starter for him, and I'd even pay for his lunch, and that for me was quite a step, you see. But nevertheless, he didn't accept it. But the fact of the matter is that here is one of the many statements. I would like to ask a question of anyone that would make a statement that Jesus never taught his deity. I'd like to know what he's saying here in this first verse if he's not making himself equal with God. "...let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me." And friends, this makes something else very clear. And it makes it clear that if you just believe in God, that just means one thing. You're not an atheist. But to be a Christian means to have a personal faith and trust in Christ. Now he says, "...in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you." Now, let's establish first of all what the Father's house is. Now, the Father's house is this vast universe that you and I live in today. We're living on one of the very minor, smallest planets that there is. We're just a speck in space. Fact of the matter is, if you got far enough away, no one could see us, even with the most powerful telescope. We live in the Father's house, and you can go out at night and look up, and you can look into part of the Father's house. You see the starry spaces. Now, man today is certainly living in a universe that's ever-expanding. Sir James Jeans called it in his book, This Expanding Universe. And first, man thought of this little earth being about it and that the stars up there were sort of like electric light bulbs screwed in the top of the universe. Well, he began then to explore and found out that we are in a solar system, that we are actually going around the sun, and there are quite a few other planets tripping the light fantastic around the sun with us. And even that's very minor, and that we are with other solar systems in what they call a galactic system. And when you look up at the Milky Way, you see the other side of our galactic system. Now, friends, that's just one galactic system. If you move out far enough, Well, you'll find other galactic systems that make ours look like it's just a peanut in space because they're much vaster. We're told our nearest neighbor, as far as a galactic system is concerned, is Andromeda. And I think they tell us that it's something like 200 million light years away from us. That means that light traveling 186,000 miles a second And that you figure out how far it'd go in a year, and that'd be a pretty good distance. And then you go 200 million light years, and if you travel like that in 200 million years, you'd get out to what they facetiously say is our nearest neighbor. Now, friends, don't go to our nearest neighbor to borrow a cup of sugar coffee of a morning, because you won't get back even in time for lunch. It's a long ways out there. But even these galactic systems are not the end of space at all. Even beyond them, they find today what they call quasars. Now, friends, the reason that the astronomers call them quasars is because they even don't know what they are. They have found them through the radio telescopes like they have up here at Goldstone on the Mojave Desert, and they've got a bigger one over in England, you know, and they have found out that beyond these quasars, there are other... Well, they don't know what they are, but the British always come up with some very fine scientific terms, and they call them blops. We're out under blobs. Did you know, friends, that we may be living in an infinite universe? Just think how vast this universe is as we know it. And the end is not yet. It may be infinite. And if it is infinite... You must be dealing with an infinite God, you see. You'll have to have him if you have an infinite universe. And it may be that God is letting us paint ourselves into a corner today, and we're going to have to acknowledge that he's up there after all, that he didn't die, and that he's really the man upstairs, that there is a God. This is tremendous. Now, Lord said, "...in my Father's house there are many mansions." And I think there was a wry smile on his face when he said that, because he is the one who made them, and he knew how many there were out there, and I don't. Probably you and I could never be able to count them. Now, I do not believe that in this vast universe, God has a vacancy sign hanging out. Now, I don't mean that mankind, human beings, are living on any other planet. I don't think so. One's enough, and we are the ones that are in rebellion against God. And I think this vast universe filled with created intelligences is looking at this little earth, because here is where they've seen something they've never seen or experienced before. And that's just simply this. God's created intelligences, they knew something about His wisdom. They knew something about His person. They knew something about His power. But they knew nothing about His love. Until the second person of the Trinity, of the triune Godhead, he came down to this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and died on a cross because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. And there is a display of his love on this earth. Now, you and I think we're pretty valuable. And I don't want to offend you today, friends, but you know the human race isn't worth saving. God could just very easily brush us off of this little earth and start over again. In fact, he could speak the little earth out of existence and get rid of us altogether in the little earth, and he wouldn't miss it. But you see, he wouldn't be demonstrating love, would he? He'd be demonstrating justice and righteousness and many other things, but he certainly wouldn't be revealing love. And God loves us, and that's the amazing thing, and that's the most wonderful thing in the world, friends. God loves you, and He loves you not because you're worth loving, but He loves you in spite of the fact that we are absolutely, totally depraved. We belong to that kind of a human race. Now, if you deny that, look around you today. How could a civilization that reached the heights we did Tumble in just a two or three decades as far down as we've gone, unless there's something radically wrong with the human family. And God's been saying all along that there's something radical with the human family. The Lord Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like that word mansions. I'm not looking for a mansion. I, for many years, was an ordained Presbyterian preacher. And I lived in what that church calls a manse. And that's a shortened form of mansion. Now, friends, I have lived in some very odd mansions. When I was pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, I lived in an old antebellum home. I think it had 14 rooms in it. I never did count them, because I don't think I ever got in all of them. I used to tell the folk, on a clear day, you could see the ceiling in the living room. Well, I moved in, and I wasn't even married, friends. And that was a pretty big place. And I can remember how cold that place got in winter time, because you only had a little grate to heat it. And very frankly, I just lived in the corner of one room and had my study upstairs in a room up there. And when anybody talks to me about a mansion in the sky, I just have to say, I shudder, I don't want it. And I'm thankful that's not what the word means after all. The Greek word is moni. It doesn't mean mansions, if you're thinking in terms of a house. It doesn't mean that at all. It means in my Father's house are many abiding places. And this vast universe, as we've already suggested, is filled with abiding places. Now, he said, if it were not so, I would have told you. The Lord Jesus puts his entire reputation on the line here. You either believe him or you don't believe him, my friend. Now, he says... I go to prepare a special place for you. And this is quite wonderful. This vast universe filled with so many places, and yet he's gone to prepare a place for those that are his own. Now, there are two or three things here quite interesting. I remember years ago when they were grinding the mirror for the 200-inch eye that's down at Palomar, Why, they missed it the first time. I believe it was a millionth of an inch. And one of the men working on that, I knew him, and I asked him what had happened. He said, they missed it, I think, about a millionth of an inch. And I said, my, you're sure getting careless down there to miss it like that. They had to have a paraboloid surface, you know, in order for it to focus correctly. And finally they got it, and then they had difficulty getting it up the mountain to Palomar. And he'd work down there every week, and on weekends he'd come home. And I would ask him, what do you see through that telescope? Well, he got tired of me asking that question. Finally says, why are you so interested? Well, I said, you got it poked in the front window of my father's house. And I'd like to know what you're seeing up there, because he's gone to prepare a place for those of us that are his down here. What a wonderful thing this is. And he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, and where I am, there ye may be also. And friends, as far as I can tell, this is the first place in the Bible that you'll find where God's going to take anyone off of this universe out yonder to a place that he's prepared. This was never the hope of the Old Testament. You remember in Genesis, God never said to Abraham, I'm going to take you off out yonder under to a star. He said to them, I'm going to make your offspring like the stars of heaven in number, but I'm going to give you the land down here. And friends, the hope of the Old Testament was that there would be a kingdom down here on this earth in which dwelleth peace and righteousness. And that is God's purpose for this earth. Personally, I think this expression, the kingdom of heaven, means the reign of God over this earth. And I think that's all it means. Now, these theologians today have kicked that around of every school. And I think about every one of them has written a book on the kingdom of heaven, giving his idea of what it is. There's utter confusion today because of that. But I just happen to be poor, simple preacher. And all I can say is that the kingdom of heaven is the reign of the heavens over this earth. Now, that's God's purpose. And he has said in the second Psalm, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's God's earthly purpose. And he's moving Undeviatingly, unhesitatingly, uncompromisingly, till the day that he puts his own upon the throne down here. That's the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's God's earthly purpose. That's in the Old Testament. Here is the first time he said that he was going to take a people. And those people, beginning with the apostles, are the church today. And that the church is to be taken out of this earth and to be with Christ in the place that he's preparing out there. This is the first time it's mentioned, but it's not the last time. Paul talked about it, that the Lord himself would descend from heaven a shout the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and all of that's his voice. His voice will be like a trumpet. And his voice is like the sound of an archangel, and he's coming to call and take his own. The dead in Christ will rise first, then those that are alive in Christ will be caught up together to meet the Lord in there, and so shall they ever be with the Lord in there. In that place he's prepared, and John in Revelation shows that city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. That, my friend, will be a new Jerusalem, a new city, a new concept in city living and urban dwelling, and that's where the church will dwell throughout eternity. That's the hope. Now, the Lord Jesus said, "...whither I go ye know, and the way ye know." And he's just lifting these men to the heights because you see there in the upper room the shadow of the cross had fallen athwart that little company and sin was knocking at the door of the upper room demanding its pound of flesh. And our Lord is attempting to lift them from the here and now to the hereafter. He's attempting to lift them from the material to the spiritual, from the earthly to the heavenly. And now he says, whither I go, you know, in the way you know. But they're sitting there Another man and another apostle. And this man, every time we see him, he's asking a question, raising a raisin doubt. Old Doubting Thomas, we call him. He had a question mark for a brain. Took our Lord a long time to make an exclamation mark out of it, but he did. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest; how can we know the way? I don't know about you, but I'm glad he was there that day and asked that question because it's a good question, and it's a question that I think I'd want to have asked had I been there, and if he hadn't asked it, we never would have had john fourteen six and I'm glad we have it. Here you have the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus saith unto him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And when he said, I'm the way, it's the article in the Greek, and it's an adjective. And when he said he's the way, he means that he's not a way shower. But that he is personally the way. And it's just as simple as this. It answers the question. A church can never bring you to God. A ceremony can never bring you to God. Only Christ can bring you to God. And either you have Christ or you don't have him. Either you trust him or you don't trust him. He says, I'm the way. When he said, I'm the truth, he didn't say, I tell the truth, although he did that. He says, I'm the bureau of standards for truth. I'm the touchstone of truth. And he says, I'm I'm the life. And when he said, I'm the life, he didn't say, I'm merely alive. He's the source, the origin of life. Everything that has life, from the lowest vegetable plane to the highest spiritual plane, draws life from him. And then he says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he made a dead-end street, friends, out of all the cults and isms of Southern California. And he says, the only way that'll get you to God is through Christ. No man can come to the Father except through Christ. Now, this is a dogmatic statement. Years ago, a student out at UCLA said to me, I don't like the Bible because it's filled with dogmatism. And I agreed with him. I said, it sure is. But I said, specifically, what do you have reference to? And he mentioned this verse here. He says, that's dogmatic. I said, it sure is. But I said, you know, it's characteristic of truth to be dogmatic. I used the illustration, two plus two equal four. I had a teacher in school. She was the most dogmatic, narrow-minded person I've ever met. She insisted that under all circumstances and conditions, 2 plus 2 equal 4, and it didn't make any difference. What you had 2 of, it had always come out 4. And I have never had that proven to me, but she was dogmatic about it. But I found out that the bank I do business with uses the same system. Only in my case, it's 2 minus 2 equals 0. But it's the same principle. And they're dogmatic about it. Friends, let me say to you, one of the characteristics of truth is it's dogmatic. Now, not all dogmatism is truth, because there's a lot of ignorance that's dogmatism. But my friend, here you have that which is truth, and it's dogmatic. It has to be dogmatic. When I ask directions to get to a certain place and a man hesitates, I don't want to listen to him. But if another man there says, oh yes, this is the way, And I say to him, are you sure? And he says, am I sure? I know. Then I'm very happy to follow his directions. And I said to this young man, I said, you know, millions of people for 1900 years have been coming to this person on the basis of this statement here. And they found out that it's accurate, that it brings you to heaven. And I said, since truth is dogmatic, and you agree this is dogmatic, Why don't you try it? He says you're not going to get to heaven except through him. Why not come through him and make sure? And friend, today, do you have him? Is Christ your Savior today? Are you trusting him as your personal Savior and nothing else? Because he alone can save. He alone will save. And all he asks you to do is to come to him. And friends, you either trust him this morning or you don't trust him. And if you do trust him, you're saved. And if you don't, you're not saved. It's that simple. It's that clear. And friends, it's that dogmatic. Now, as we suggested before, those men are frightened there in the upper room. And another man is going to interrupt him now. But let me read verse 7. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Now, this man Philip was a very quiet individual. He actually was the opposite from the loquacious Simon Peter. And I think he spoke very seldom. The very interesting thing is that there are those that actually believe with the name, which was a Greek name, that he might have been a Greek. I don't think that follows by any manner of means. But he is a very unusual man. Every time we meet him, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. You remember he's the one that came to Nathaniel, and how he and Nathaniel ever hit it off. I've often wondered. Philip the quiet man and Nathaniel was the wisecracker. And I suppose that men like that get along. I've noticed that sometimes husband and wives are like that, one very talkative and the other very quiet. Philip was the straight man and Nathaniel was the humorist. But he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. You remember the Greeks came to him and said, we would see Jesus. And now he expresses here the highest ambition the highest desire of any person in the Word of God or out of the Bible for that matter. I'd just like to ask you a personal question today. What is your desire in life? What is your ultimate goal? Do you want to get rich? Do you want to make a name for yourself? you want to educate your children? you want to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Nothing wrong with any of these things I've mentioned. But the highest is this, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. He said, I'd love to see God. I'd just like to have a seat on the 50-yard line and spend the first million years in eternity looking at the Father. And... I'm not sure of this, and I've made this statement before, and I always get a great deal of letters of misunderstanding, and I'm going to risk making this statement again. God is the Spirit, we are told, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, and I'm not sure that we are going to see the Father. I believe that we'll see the Lord Jesus. Now, if you'll notice what our Lord says on down here in verse 20, "...at that day ye shall know that I am in the Father, and ye in me, and I in you." That's a great verse. And we'll see Christ. That's the important thing. And that's the reason that in this earthly pilgrimage that we're in today, we ought to come to know him better. And I do not know what your vocation or avocation is. You may have a wonderful hobby of collecting match boxes. A lot of people do that. Or maybe getting a few shells together. I've started that It's just sort of something that I do when I haven't anything else to do. And that's not very often. And I only get to do this when I'm down in the state of Florida. Well, may I say that the most important thing is, because we're going to spend eternity with Christ, is to come to know him. And so Philip saith unto him, "'Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us.' And the Lord Jesus said unto him, "'Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father.' Now, what he's saying is, you're not seeing the identical person, but you are seeing the same person in power, in character, in love, in everything else. When you see me, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. You've seen all that you would see in God, the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? In other words... Even Philip, who apparently had a spiritual perception and certainly a glorious ambition and desire to want to see God. And you remember this was Moses. Moses who had fellowship with him on the mountain. He said, Oh, that I might see. And that is the desire, I think, of every man of God, every person today that knows the Lord and loves him. Now notice what he goes on to say. He says, "...Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works." Now, here are two things that he's talking about, words and works, and they're the same. That is the problem today for believers, is to get their words and their works To be the same, one equals the other. We make tremendous statements today. I hear glorious testimonies sometimes. But friends, none of us are perfect. None of us live a perfect life. That's the reason we said in John 13, every Christian ought to have a time of confession. And the Lord Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part, no fellowship with me. And many are losing their fellowship because they think that they are all right, and we're not all right. Our words and works need to correspond. And the words and works of the Lord Jesus did. Now, what he's saying here is this. The words that I speak are not mine. Have you ever noticed that the Lord Jesus never appealed to his own mind and his own will to make a decision? Every time he said, I'm doing this because it's the will of the Father. What he spoke was the will of the Father. And the works that he did were the will of the Father. Then he says in that, Philip, when you've heard my words, you've heard the words of the Father. When you've seen my works, you've seen the works of the Father because it's the Father working in me. Now he goes on, and by the way, Philip's, interruption didn't pull the Lord Jesus down so far as that of Peter and Thomas, because now he moves to the heights, and he keeps moving a long time before he's interrupted again, and that's in verse 22. Now, notice what he says here, because this is a very important section, and yet we're moving over it faster than we moved over the first part of the chapter. He says, "...believe me That I'm in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Now, he says, if you can't believe me because of my words, what I'm saying, believe me for the work's sake. What you've seen, that should convince you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father." Now, to begin with, I think I should call attention to the fact that in this verse, the second works that's mentioned here, it says, "...and greater works than these shall he do." The word works is in italics. That means that it's not in the better manuscripts. It's put in there just to fill out the thought. Notice what he says, "...the works that I do shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do." And what is the greater than these shall he do? Because I go unto my Father. Well, now, when the Lord Jesus was down here on this earth, he was able to perform tremendous works, miracles, if you please. And they were great works, but because of who he was, you'd expect him to do that. Now he speaks to believers, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Now, what are these? What has he been doing in John's gospel? What's been the accomplishment? Well, the supreme accomplishment is he's been bringing men and women into a right relationship with God. Now, what are the even greater works? What are the greater works? Well, let me mention some of them. On the day of Pentecost, when that fellow Simon Peter, who denied him the night he was arrested, when that man Simon Peter got up and preached a sermon, 3,000 people came to God. That's greater works. Our Lord, when he was here, there never was that many that turned to it. And then you remember Paul in Philippi went there and preached the gospel, and a church came into existence that was very close to him. And then I think of a missionary years ago by the name of George L. Mackay, who went to Uganda. What a missionary. And then I think of another one by the name of Mackay that went to Formosa. And they called him the black-bearded barbarian, because he went there and just cut himself loose from the homeland. And when ships would come into the harbor, they wouldn't dare go on shore because these people were said to be, you know, cannibals at that time. And they wouldn't go. But this man, Micaiah, was there. He won many to the Lord. May I say those are greater works. And greater works because I go to my Father. You see, it's Christ who is still working. But today he's working through human instrumentality, through frail human clay. Human flesh. He's working that way today. And I'll be very honest with you. I want to say to you, I'm amazed that I can just get on this radio and give a Bible message, and there are people that will turn to Christ. Friends, that's greater works. Now, if he were here doing it, it'd be different. But when Vernon McGee does it, my friend, it's a greater work. I can assure you that. And that's what he means by greater works. Because I go to my Father... And do you notice how many times he's talked about the Father here? I've counted that, and I have it down somewhere, but I don't seem to have it before me right here. Listen to him, what he says here. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the next one. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, a great many people have just picked that up, and like a dog picks up a bone and runs with it, they pick this up and run with it, and they say later on, Well, I prayed, and God didn't answer my prayer. I talked to a very prominent executive in a company here in Southern California the other day, and he's a wonderful Christian. He said, very frankly, I'd like to talk to you. Now, he says, I've taken that verse at face value, and I prayed, and God didn't answer. Now, what's wrong? Well, I said, the thing that's wrong is that you're reading something into that that's not there at all. And I said, frankly, you ought to keep on reading. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. And all of this is tied up in one package. And what does it mean to ask in the name of Christ? And he says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. A prayer that will enable God to glorify the Son is the prayer that he'll answer. Therefore, to pray in his person means to be standing in his place. It means to be fully identified with him. And it's to ask because we're joined to Christ. And it means that you and I are pleading the merits of His blessed Son when we stand before God. I have no standing before God at all. He doesn't hear my prayer because I'm Vernon McGinn. He doesn't hear your prayer because you're who you are. He hears your prayer when it's in the name of Christ. And when you pray in the name of Christ, that's just not something you put on the tag into your prayer. You know, just say, in Jesus' name. Well, may I say to you, there's something very important. When you're praying in his name and presenting it in his merits, it means it must be for his glory. And it must be for him. And it's for him that we are praying, not for our selfish ends. Let me illustrate this. The man who sends you a tax bill, he doesn't say, I need the money, send me so much. If he does get it, it's dishonest, of course. But he's getting it for the state or the county or the city. He's getting it for someone else. That's a very unfortunate illustration I recognize that I'm using, but friends, it makes it clear that when you pray in the name of Christ, you're praying for him, not for yourself, that his name, that Father may be able to be glorified in the Son down here. And then it depends on obedience to Christ. It means that we're obeying him. And there's so many people today that think they can go and fling that in God's face and say, look, you've got to answer this because you said this. Yes, but he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. How are you doing in that area, friend? Do you love him? And are you keeping his commandments because you love him today? That's important. He's just not hearing any prayer at all. You have to come in the name of Christ. It's like the story Dr. Harry Ironside used to tell about holding a meeting in a church and sitting on a platform with the pastor one night, and a young lady came in, and the pastor said, You know, that young lady used to be one of my most active members, sang in the choir, taught a Sunday school class, then began to run in the world and was in the world. And he says, This is the first time I've seen her in church in months. And so Dr. Ironside took this passage of Scripture that night, and he could see she was incensed. And after the service, she came up to him and says, how dare you tell these people here, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And Dr. Arnside says, sit down and tell me about it. And she said, well, my father got desperately sick. And the doctor came one evening to see him, and he went upstairs to his bedroom and I went in the living room, knelt down on my knees, and I claimed that promise. If you shall ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And when the doctor came down, he told me my father just expired. He just died. Now, she says, don't tell me that he'll answer that. Dr. Ironside said, did you read the next verse? If you love me, keep my commandments. And Dr. Ironside says, suppose you were walking down the street and you picked up a check made out to somebody else. You went to the bank, and you signed that name and tried to cash it. What would you be? Well, she said, I'd be a forger. Well, Dr. Ironside says, you know that's what you are. You found a verse in the Bible, a check made out to somebody else. It wasn't made to you. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love him? Have you been keeping his commandments? And she turned red. And then Dr. Ironside said to her, says, you see... You're trying to cash a check made out to somebody else. Friends, we need to recognize we need to be obedient to him. Now, he says, I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not neither knoweth him. But ye know him, now this is important to see, for he dwelleth with you and he shall be in you. That's the unique fact of this age in which we're living. The Holy Spirit was in the world before Pentecost, but on the day of Pentecost, he indwelt believers. That was the thing that was new. Now, he says, I'll not leave you comfortless. And the word comfortless is orphanoi. He says, I'll not leave you orphans. I'm coming to you. And that is in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 20, we looked at a moment ago, but notice he says, "'At that day,' what day is that? "'Ye shall know that I am in the Father.'" That's the day you and I are living in. That was the day that began with Pentecost. "'And ye and me, and I in you.'" That's the most profound statement that you'll find in the Gospel of John, or in the Bible, or anywhere No philosopher can plumb the meaning of that expression. Yet a six-year-old child could take each one of those words, their monosyllabic words, and tell you the meaning of each one of them. Ye in me. What is that? My friend, that's salvation. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be in Christ, and I in you. And that's Christian living down here. One is your position, the other is your practice down here. Is Christ living in you? Paul says... Christ liveth in me, the life I now live in the flesh. Now, will you notice verse 21? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Don't tell me you love Christ and you're not obeying him. You're not. He's making it clear here. This should be read very carefully, and I regret I can't. I must get to the end of this chapter. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I love him. Now, manifest myself unto him. Now, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? What he's saying here is, Lord, this is wonderful to be hearing. here and hear you say these things, but have you forgotten the world? This is the first missionary, by the way. Now, what the Lord Jesus says to him is this in the rest of this chapter, he says, Judas, I haven't forgotten the world. I'm thinking of the world. The reason that I've called you apostles in here and are given you this truth is that you might take it to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm thinking of the world. I haven't forgotten the world. But this is the only way that this can be gotten out and out of the world is through you. And John was there in the upper room and see, he's given us all of this. Now he says to them here, that the Holy Spirit, He'll teach you all things, bring all things to your remembrance. And He says, "'Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you.'" This is the glorious, wonderful peace that comes to the heart of those that are fully yielded to the Lord Jesus, and therefore those, because He says, "'If ye loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father.'" "...for my Father is greater than I." And then the last verse, "...but that the world may know that I love the Father, and the Father gave me commandment, even so I do." And now he says, "...Arise, let us go hence from here." Now he says he's not going to talk very much more with them, and he didn't. But that the prince of this world was coming, he'd have another siege with Satan." And I believe that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he'd go to the cross for the sins of the world, and the Holy Spirit would come into the world. And I trust even right now that he's making the Lord Jesus real to each one of you. Now, friends, we come today to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. And this is still in the upper room discourse. However, our Lord did not give this in the upper room. At least the assumption is that he did not, because the last statement he made in chapter 14 is, arise, let us go hence. Now, did they go immediately out of the upper room? It is assumed, of course, that they did. However, he could have given John 15 in the upper room, but it doesn't seem likely to me that that is the way it took place. Now, somewhere between the upper room and the garden of Gethsemane, our Lord gave John 15 and 16. And then John 17 is the prayer that he prayed He probably prayed this prayer on the way out to the garden, and it probably was as he entered the garden. This is not the prayer in the garden of Gethsemane that we have in John 17. Now, the thing I think would be helpful would be to try to locate the place where our Lord gave John 15, when he began by saying, "...I am the true vine." And my father is the husbandman. Now it has been the belief of a great many expositors that our Lord gave this part of the upper room discoas down in the valley of Kidron or on the side of the hill there or the side of the Mount of Olives because we know at that time there was a vineyard in that area that covered that valley. We also know that it was full moon, because it was Passover, and it couldn't have been Passover if it hadn't have been full moon. And so there in the full moon, with that vineyard before them, our Lord said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Now, he could have well have done that, and that would have been an appropriate place. But there has been another suggestion made, and it has been made by several of the English expositors. And very candidly, it's the one I accept, that that night he went by the temple. And following the law as meticulously as he did, I'm of the opinion that he went by the temple that night. The gates were open all night on this Passover night. And at the temple, there were the gates there. Those beautiful gates of the temple were really a tourist attraction. They had been forged over in Greece. They had been floated across the Hellespont and then brought to Jerusalem and put into Herod's temple there. They were made of bronze, the gates were, and there was woven into the gate with gold. There was woven in there a golden vine. And that vine was the badge of the nation Israel. In fact of the matter is, that vine stood for the nation Israel. There's probably no figure of speech that is so appropriate as the vine that sets forth this nation. It became a badge of the nation, just like the burning bush is, and I think just like the olive tree is. But it's quite definite, so stated in Scripture, the Old Testament, that the vine set forth the nation Israel. Listen now to several Scriptures. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, "...thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it fill the land." That's obvious that he's talking about the nation Israel and using the vine. And if you have any doubts about that, turn to Isaiah 5, and that actually is a psalm. And it begins like this, "...now will I sing to my well-beloved a song, of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes." Now, notice verse 7, "...for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the man of Judah his pleasant plant." Now, friends, that makes it specific. There's no way of dodging or avoiding the fact that the vine was Israel. Now, he says here in Jeremiah 2, verse 21, "...I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me?" And then finally, in Hosea, the 10th chapter, verse 1, "...Israel is an empty vine, he bringeth forth fruit unto himself." Now, I think it's quite clear that the vine is a picture of the nation Israel. Now, our Lord in the upper room, friends, is saying one of the most revolutionary things that you've ever heard. That is, for those men in that day, this was strange to their ears. It sounds so familiar to us today. Will you listen to him? And I want to change this just a little. I am the true vine. The word true here is a alathenae, and a thing can be true in one of two ways. It can be true over against error or falsehood, but it can be true over against that which is a counterfeit, and that's the way it's used here. And I think a better translation would be this, I am the genuine vine. In other words, the Lord Jesus is saying to these men, with their background and their roots deep in the Old Testament, he is saying to them, now, brethren, to be identified with a religion and with a nation is no longer the essential thing. I am the genuine vine, and to be joined to me. And this is a marvelous figure of speech our Lord used, by the way, so that? He's making it very clear, and this is revolutionary, friends, and it's still true today. It is not your identification with a religion or a ceremony or a group or this organization or that. The important thing, are you identified with Christ? Are you in Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes the moment you trust Christ as Savior and are born again and become a child of God. He says, I am the genuine vine. And now he says, my father is the husbandman. And in these passages we've given in the Old Testament, God has been the owner of the vineyard, and he's been the one running it. But here he is the one that cultivates it also. And he is the one that does that. And you know, I think that you have here the vine and the branch. You remember it says of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament that he grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He's the vine, and we must be joined to him. For what purpose? For fruit bearing. Now there are three things that he's going to say here that are very, very important. And I want you to notice them. There are three words, and I'll read about three verses here to pick them up. Listen to this. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. Now, there are three words here that I think if we understand them, we'll understand what our Lord is speaking about. One is the little preposition, "...in." Now, those of you who've listened to our program over a period of time, know that I've put a great emphasis on the little preposition in when it precedes Christ or any pronoun that refers to him. Here, it's every branch in me. Now, what does it mean really to be saved? Now, the theologians, as I've indicated before, have come up with some tremendous words and their Bible words, good words, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and even salvation. But all of those words actually only cover one particular phase of salvation. Not one of them covers the entire spectrum of salvation. Now, what word does? Well every branch in me. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be in Christ. And there are only two groups of people, those that are in Christ, those that are out of Christ. And how do you get in Christ? By the new birth. And as I've already mentioned, that when you trust Christ as Savior, you become a child of God through faith in Christ, born again, by the Spirit of God, but the Spirit does something else. He not only indwells you, but He also baptizes you. And that's what puts you in the body of Christ. Every branch in me. So now we're talking about believers here, friends. We're not talking about how anybody gets saved. We're not actually talking about salvation in this passage. We're going to talk about fruit bearing, because notice that's the next word, Fruit. Now, the little preposition in occurs seven times. Now, fruit occurs six times. And I'm just taking the first ten verses here. You see, you could follow these on down. And we have here fruit, and you have three degrees of fruit bearing, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. And the whole purpose here is to bear fruit. We're going to see what the fruit really means. Now, the third word is the word abide, abide in me. Now, that word abide here, it occurs nine times in these first few verses. I have the statement of someone else who says that it occurs 15 times here, and that's just a few more than I can count, but... I'm not good at mathematics, so it may be 15 times. The important thing, it occurs more than any other word. And that, of course, is the modus operandi by which we bear fruit. So here we have, in Christ, and we have fruit. More fruit, much fruit, and then abiding in Christ. Now, let's look at what our Lord is saying here. He says, "...every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away." Now, when he takes it away, where is he taking it? Well, he takes it away from the place of fruit bearing. And how do you remove a branch? Well, you trim it off, by the way. Listen to the way he describes it in verse 6. If a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch and is withered. Men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Now, somebody says, ooh, that sounds like you lose your salvation. Didn't we just say we're not talking about salvation? We're talking about fruit bearing. We're talking about that which is the result of being saved. Now, to begin with, what is fruit? And I think it's very important to determine what the fruit is. Now, I do not believe that fruit here... Is soul-winning, as so many people seem to think. I believe that is the byproduct of it. But the fruit, of course, is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering mind. That's the fruits of the Spirit that are in the believer's life. And here you have three that are really mentioned. You have, for instance, prayer effectual. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will. It shall be done unto you. That's one of the fruits, prayer effectual. And then verse 8 here, he says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. And that's fruit perpetual. And then you have verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. And it's joy celestial, prayer effectual. Fruit perpetual, joy celestial. That's the things that are mentioned here. And that's fruit. And it's the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions. Now, if a person has those in his life, he will be bringing men into the presence of God. By his very life, if not by his spoken word. And that, of course, makes soul winning a byproduct. But the important thing here is he wants fruit in our lives. Now, when a branch doesn't bear fruit, he takes it away. He removes it. Well, how does he remove it? Well, one of the ways he removes it is by taking that person away from the place of fruit bearing. Now, I know many that have been set aside today that they no longer effective for God at all. They're ministers like that. There are laymen like that today. I don't care about being specific about this, but how true it is. And then there's some that are taken away in death. Now, I believe that that's what John means in his first epistle, when he says there's a sin unto death. Now, that means physical death. That means that a Christian can go on into sin until God will remove him from the place of fruit-bearing. Ananias and Sapphira are an example of that. God removed them. I don't think Ananias and Sapphira lost their salvation. I think that they just were removed from the early church that was a fruit-bearing church, a holy church. And these two liars just couldn't stay in that church. Now, they're very comfortable in our churches today, I'll say that. But they couldn't have been in the early church but what he's talking about here, you see, is taking away a branch that won't bear fruit. And then he says, even when a branch is bearing fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, this word purge is an interesting word. It's been translated prune, of course, in many places. And I like that. I think that the thought is sheer. But actually, the word in the Greek is kathiric. And it means to cleanse. And it's to forget that in that day, they didn't have the sprays to use. And they actually would take water. And they would take some sort of a cloth or hyssop or something. And they would just cleanse the vine with that. Just wash the vine. When there was aphis on it or bugs or anything like that, it was actually just really washing the vine. So that there were two things that were done. The cleansing and also the pruning, and that was the thing that was done. Now, our Lord prunes. He comes into our lives, and he takes out of our lives those things that offend, and sometimes it hurts when he prunes his friends, and it is something that's very painful. Many times he takes out of your life and my life the things that are hindering us, and I can speak up to that subject, He's done that in my life in two or three different ways, and I know that's what he was doing. He was pruning, and I'm here to confess that it hurt. I'm not sure, but what the Lord was pruning me when he permitted me to have cancer, and has permitted it to stay in my body, I'm of the opinion that that's what the Lord is doing. I'm not complaining, I just want him to let me stay around and Keep giving out the Word of God, friends. That's the important thing. But I think He prunes us, you know, reaches in. And one of the reasons that so many of God's children are getting hurt today, even by this method of pruning, is that they're getting so far from God. They're so far out of fellowship. I think the closer that we get to Him, that the better it would be, and it wouldn't hurt so much. What we need to do is to get very close to the Lord in these days. I remember when I was a boy, we, on April Fool, why a bunch of us at school played hooky. I personally was a very good boy, but I got with some bad boys, and they played hooky, and so I went with them. And we left our books at school, and then we took off for the creek, and we went fishing. And the creek was up. I remember this particular time, and we didn't catch any fish, but we sure had a big day. And we came in about time school was out, after everybody had left, and we decided that the proper thing to do was to go get our books, take them home, so that our parents wouldn't suspect that we'd played hooky. Principal of the school, I think, thought we'd do that also, because when we walked in the room, he walked in after us, and he said, "'Boys, I'm glad to see you. Follow me.'" And we'd been over that trail before, so we followed him to his office, And he said, wait here while he went to get his switches. And he had some long ones. And one fellow who'd been in there quite a few times, and he really knew his way around, he gave us about the best advice I think that I've ever had. He said, now, when he comes down the first time, don't move away from him. Move close to him. Take a step toward him. And you know that is the best advice I think I ever got. So the first time he hit me... I moved right close into him. Fact fact, the matter is, by the time he finished, I was right up where his fist was, and he wasn't hurting me at all. And you know, that was good advice. And I've learned that that's good advice today. The Lord, you know, prunes us, He chastises us. Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. It's not a sign that He's against you, He's trying to get fruit out of your life friend, and you and I begin to move away from him and complain, the thing to do is get close to him. And when we get close to him, it won't hurt nearly as much. Now, I return back to the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, and this chapter, as all of them here in John, are a great thrill to my heart, as I'm sure they are to yours, Now, he mentions here three things that the Father does to get fruit. First thing he does, if a branch will not bear fruit, he takes it away. And the second thing he does, he purges it. By purging it, he either prunes it by cutting away something in our lives, or by washing it, by cleansing it. And he tells us here now in verse 3, "...now you're clean through the Word." which I have spoken unto you. Friends, that's probably one of the most wonderful things that he said, the cleansing power of the Word of God. Now, we've heard so much today about modern wash day miracles. And I've never found them to be quite as miraculous as they claim to be. But nevertheless, and they are beginning now to pollute our streams. So I think we need a better cleansing agency. I think really the only a miracle that there is, is the Word of God and the cleansing power of the Word of God. I wonder if you've ever noticed that the emphasis that's put in the Scripture on the cleansing of the Word of God. For instance, over in Second Peter, we are told that he does the cleansing and he also does the removing of the vine also. Now, first, will you notice what he does by removing the vine, he says here in Second Peter 1 and verse 8, he says, "...For if these things be in you, and abound, they make you, that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." You see, this is something that the branch is not to be is unfruitful, and when it is, He'll remove it. Now, I'm going to deal with that in just a few moments. But now I want you to notice the cleansing power of the Word of God. And this is something that I think is very important to know today. The Word of God cleanses us, by the way, in the new birth. Back in 1 Peter, in the first chapter, you will recall the thing that is said there. 1 Peter 1 let me read beginning verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere love of the brethren, love one another earnestly from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. How wonderful that is. The power of the Word of God, but also the Word of God has power to cleanse us. And you remember that the psalmist asks the question and then answers it. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. How important that is. And then over in Second Corinthians, the 7th chapter, verse 1. Listen to this. Having therefore these promises. What promises? The ones that are in the word of God. "...let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God." There are light views today among believers that you can live any kind of a life, and that just so you're fundamental and saved by the grace of God. Well, believe me, God uses the Word of God to reveal to us that we are in darkness. And I've learned this a long time ago, that A great many of these super pious saints. And friends, I was a pastor for a long time. These super pious saints, several of them I've noticed carry the biggest Bible around under their arm you've ever seen. And they generally never have a sense of humor. Very pious. But they're really not interested in the Word of God. I've observed over the years they never did attend Bible study. They never were interested in the Word of God. In fact, they resented it. They really... Down in their hearts, they hated the Word of God. And that was, I think, the real test. And, my friend, that's the only thing today that reveals whether a person, I think, is genuine, is his relationship to the Word of God and whether it's having its way in his life. Now, God intends for us to be obedient to him, by the way, and that there should be fruit in our lives. Now, the psalmist says here in Psalm 119, listen to verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now that I kept thy word. And then in verse 71 of Psalm 119, It's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Now, he cleanses the branch. And how does he cleanse it? Well, he cleanses it by the Word of God. And my friends, he uses many times affliction to bring us to the Word of God, that you and I might be made serviceable to him. Now, the Word of God is a cleansing agent for us today. And I don't think that you'll ever keep clean before God if you don't come to the Word of God and study the Word of God. That's my reason for believing. These people that are reluctant to study the Word of God today and are as active as beavers in our churches today, they always take offices, and they're dangerous. fact of the matter is, I consider them the most dangerous element today against the Word of God in the cause of Christ in this world. My friend, we need to get close to the Word of God. Now, he says here, "...abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me." Now, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, it means this. There must be, first of all, this continual cleansing. That's the supernatural power of the Word. And it is that which must cleanse us daily. The only way to abide in him is to do that. And then we must recognize that we're to keep his commandments. Notice he says in verse 10, "...if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I've kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love." And he says down here a little farther, he says, "...ye are my friends, if ye do..." "...whatsoever I've commanded you." And my friend, let me say to you, verse 14, "...you're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you." Now, let me say this, and I want to say it very kindly again. There are a lot of songs today that have, you know, Jesus is a friend of mine, and they sing these songs. Oh, what a friend is the lowly Jesus. Well, I'll have you know today, he's not the lowly Jesus. He's the glorified Christ right now at God's right hand. There's no lowly Jesus today. And what about being a friend? Now, wait just a minute. I don't like these songs that say he's a friend of mine. Somebody says, well, I thought that was wonderful. No, that's sentimental, and it's very wrong. Suppose that I would say today that, The President of the United States is my friend. Well, I bring him right down to my level. And you're bringing Jesus down to your level when you say that he's a friend of yours. But let him say it. He says, Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Now listen, my beloved. If the President of the United States says that I'm a friend of his, he's brought me up to his level. Now the Lord Jesus says that we're his friends if we do what he commands. Now, when I hear anybody saying Jesus is a friend of mine, I always feel like saying, well, my brother, are you obeying him? Don't call him your friend unless you're obeying him. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And I think instead of all this sentimental trash we have today, I think we all need to do a little heart searching. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And so this matter of abiding in Christ is very important. And then there's something else that's very important here, and I'll have to drop down and pick it up. He says, "...as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love." And that means constant communion. Now, I don't think that you can live like the devil all week and then go out in the world on Saturday night and then expect to come in and serve the Lord on Sunday I happen to know you can't do that because I tried that for years in being out in the world on Saturday night and then come in and teach a Sunday school class Sunday morning. And I wondered why I was so dead Sunday morning. Now, I'll tell you why. Because of Saturday night. My friend, you have to have constant communion with Him. Now, the branch isn't like a spigot that it just jumps off and runs around and then comes back and joins itself You say, well, that's ridiculous. It sure is, but there are a lot of Christians that think they can do that today. And my friend, you can't do that. You have to have constant communion with him. And that means at the workbench, in the office, that means on the street. It means to have constant communion with Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is very important today. Now, I'd love to develop that more, but I must move on. He says here, "'I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me.'" Now, you see, you've been joined to him by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you have a free will, and you can break that fellowship. You can break that fellowship by not abiding in him, by sin in your life, by stepping out of the will of God, by worldliness. "'He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing.'" Now, he wants to get much fruit in your life. And it's the same thing that he gave in that parable of the sower. The sower, you remember, sowed some seed that fell on good ground. And on the good ground, some brought forth 30-fold, that's fruit. Some brought forth 60-fold, that's more fruit. Some brought forth 100-fold, that's much fruit. Now, he wants much fruit. Now, he says, if a man abide not in me, he's cast. forth as a branch, and as withered men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they burned." Now somebody said, when you mentioned last time that that had to do with our fruit bearing and had nothing to do with salvation, do you know that? And may I say to you, I know that. Paul made that very clear over in 1 Corinthians under another figure of speech he told about "...that there is no foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Now he says, "...if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest." Now we're talking about the works of believers. We're talking about fruit in the life of the believer. "...for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is." Well, if a man builds with gold, silver, precious stone, fire actually purifies it, draws off the draughts. Now, what about wood, hay, and stubble? Well, that all goes up in smoke. That's the same that he's talking about here. Men gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burn. That's the works we're talking about now, the so-called fruit of any man. Now, he says here, If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And I believe that you are only get a reward for the fruit that's in your life, and that you didn't produce, he produced it. And that, my friend, is through the exercise of a gift that God gives to you. That is fruit bearing in the life of a believer. Now he says, though, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. You see, you don't lose your salvation, but he himself shall be saved, so is by fire. And I like to put it like this. There are going to be people in heaven that are going to smell just like they were bought at a fire sale. And they were, by the way, because everything they did, that branch there that should have been a fruit-bearing branch, Why, the whole thing is consumed. But the person is saved, my friend. We're talking about fruit-bearing here. How you can get much fruit. And the Lord wants us to be fruit-bearing Christian. I think one of the saddest things is that the average Christian believes that normal Christian living is failure. And that to live on a low plane, or even if you produce any fruit at all, it'll just be fruit. And that producing much fruit is entirely out of the question. And it's not. He wants us to produce fruit. Now, listen to him. If you abide in me, now you're in Christ, abide there. Now, you can break that fellowship. He told Simon Peter, and he washed his feet. Now, here's a case of washing again. And he said to him, if I wash you not, why, you have no part. You'll have no fellowship with me. But if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, that means to be obedient to him. And he's going to say some things here. You shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, that means to abide in Christ. And it means you'll have prayer effectual. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. And therefore, the whole purpose of this is to bring glory to God, not to just get your prayer answered for a selfish reason. Now he says, as the Father hath loved me, so if I loved you, continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I've kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. Now listen to him. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Now, the Lord wants us to have a good time. Oh today one of the fruits of the Spirit is to have joy in your life. I am mortally afraid of these super pious Christians today that find no humor, walk around piously with a Bible under their arm. Beware of them, my friend, because if you are a fruit bearing Christian, you're gonna have a whole lot of fun in this life, let me tell you. You're gonna find fun and go into a Bible study. You're going to find fun in serving the Lord. You're going to find that it's the joy of your life to have fellowship with Christ. All these things are so wonderful and so important. Now, listen to him. He says, this is my commandment. Ooh, we're getting down now to his commandments. What did he say? That you love one another. Now, I think he's talking to believers here, is I've loved you. And the sad thing today is to see Christians in our churches tearing down and gossiping about one another. May I say to you, friends, the Spirit of God is not working in a church like that, and that is not a spiritual church. And many of these churches have had Bible teaching, and it reveals the fact that they've rejected the commandment of Christ. If you love one another, so I have loved you. And that puts it on a pretty high plane, which brings it up where only the Spirit of God can produce this in our lives. Now, listen to him. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the test. Now, he says, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Now, he lay down his life for us. He asks us to obey him. And he says we'll be his friends. He is our friend when he died for us. But we can't call him our friend unless we're keeping his commandments. And that's what he asks us to do. He really doesn't ask all of us to die for him. He hasn't asked me to do that yet. Someone asked Moody one time if he had dying grace. And he said, no, he didn't. But he thought that when the time came, he would have it. And he did have it. Now listen to him. He says, "...Henceforth I call you not servants." Now, that's the term in the Old Testament. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I've called you friends, for all things that I've heard of my Father have made known unto you. And this is lovely. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And that means he's responsible, by the way. And he's chosen us what? That we should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of my Father in my name he may give it you. And answers to prayers a pretty good barometer of our spirituality. These things I command you that you love one another. Now, this should be the relationship of believers. But notice what will happen if you're a child of God. The world's going to hate you. Unfortunately, you've got folk in the church today that honestly are not born again. And they're the ones that will hate you. If the world hate you, ye you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, he says, if you were of the world... Why, the world wouldn't love his own. Beware again of the Christian who's popular with the world. A child of God cannot be popular with the world. To me, that was always the test of whether a Hollywood star was converted. I taught the Bible class there quite a few times many years ago. And I always used that as a barometer. How are they loved by the world? The world won't love a real child of God. Cannot. Now he moves on down here. He says, "...he that hateth me hateth my Father also." Verse 23, "...if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my Father." You see, the Lord turned the light on. Anyone turns the light on Why, the thing's going to happen, the rats and the snakes and the bugs and the lizards hate it, and they're going to run for cover, and they'll hate the one who turns it on, by the way. He says, "...they hated me without a cause." No reason for it. Now he gives this wonderful word, "...but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me." And the way that you tell whether the Spirit of God is working is whether he's glorifying Christ or not. And ye shall bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. The apostles bore a particular witness that no one else could bear concerning the Lord Jesus Christ.